Ezra chapter 9 is where we are. And thank you, Mark and Pastor Aichi, for the prayer. And for all of you guys who've been supporting our family and praying for us this week. Like Pastor Mark said, it was just a, a sudden moment in my family. We've been praying for, a lot of you have been praying for my father-in-law, who's been struggling with some late-stage cancer these last few months. And so it was kind of out of the blue that my dad... Um, would have these heart issues and die so suddenly. So working on memorial services and things right now, but thank you for your prayers. And uh, it is good to do something normal this morning. And so I'm excited to preach the word with you all. And if I don't make it through it, you get out early. So it's a win-win for everyone today. As we're building together a recipe for revival. And we said week one that Ezra and Nehemiah are probably the worst two books in the Bible to use to make a recipe for revival because Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of a revival that went horribly wrong. I was kind of reminded as I was preparing to teach this morning of a time that I tried to make chocolate chip cookies as a kid. My mom kind of handed the kitchen over to me and I figured things out on my own and asked for a half a cup of sugar and so I grabbed the salt on accident. And I learned very quickly, my whole family did, uh, just what ingredients are required in which proportions to do something right by doing something terribly wrong. And so oh, these last, last week, this week, and next week, we're talking about these basic ingredients for revival, and we're learning from what the folks did wrong in these passages and what the folks, bless their heart, tried to do right in these passages. And so if you were with us last week, you heard that in this first wave of return back to Jerusalem, the priority, the foundation, the major ingredient towards revival was restoring the rhythms of a heart of worship. We talked about the beauty of gathering as a church people on Sundays in midweek. We talked about the rhythms of worship that we develop in our own lives as we seek the Lord in our quiet times. We talked about reestablishing these rhythms, coming out of a season of darkness maybe for you, and talking about how if God is gonna birth forth revival in our lives, in our church, it's gonna start by reinstating rhythms of worshiping him. So that is, that is a major ingredient. That's the first ingredient. And now in week two, we see a second ingredient towards revival after restoring the heart of religious worship is this idea of restoring biblical faithfulness in our lives and in our communities. If you're taking notes today, we'll give you some stuff to write down. And I know sometimes we put it up real quick and you can't write the whole thing down. The Three Crosses app has all of it if you miss one. But write this down. As we build a recipe for revival... It's not enough to worship Jesus. We must develop a community that resembles Jesus as well. Right? What I mean by that, and you can keep it on the screen while I say this so folks can write it down, is that some people seem to be really good at worshiping Jesus, but when you get to know them in their lives, they don't look like Jesus at all. Have you ever met someone like that? Have you ever met a church of people or a community of people who call themselves worshipers of Jesus, but they don't really resemble Jesus? Now, this could be an error if we try to become really on fire in our worship and we forget about adopting holiness in our own lives, really looking like, reflecting Jesus Christ in our own lives. And so today, as we look at this text, we start a journey on discovering what it means to become a holy people. And it's a little bit of a tumultuous journey because I know that there are a lot of people in this world, maybe you know some of these people too, who've tried really hard to become holy and instead just ended up turning horrible instead. Have you met someone like that? 
They're so passionate about living out what the Bible says. They're so passionate about knowing the word and living the word. They're so passionate about calling out sin and repentance and making people into holy people that they've just turned into these spiritual angry people and they don't look holy at all. You know, this is a story in this text of a revival gone wrong. And this was a season in the life of God's people when they were very passionate about restoring holiness and piety in their community. And one of the results of this quest was this group of individuals emerged in this time that still existed at the time of Jesus. They, they called themselves Pharisees. And these people were very passionate about religious piety. They're very passionate about holiness and purity. They really wanted to make sure that they didn't get into trouble again with the Lord. And so they were going to be holy. And yet Jesus had to call them out and say, you tried to become holy, but you just became horrible instead, right? And so we can't become Pharisees. We need to learn how to adopt the holiness and purity that Jesus has called us to step into without stepping into the pitfall of becoming pharisaical as a result. And so we're gonna look at the story of the return under Ezra to see this image of how we can grow in biblical purity and faithfulness. Ezra, the book was named Ezra after Ezra. Uh, Ezra is like an all-star, right? If, If the Bible is like a Marvel movie, Ezra is one of the superheroes, right? I know I mixed a metaphor there, but Ezra is in this text, in the book of Ezra, everything points to him as like the hope of restoring purity in God's community. There's this literary device in the beginning of Ezra chapter seven that just points at Ezra being this new like mosaic, Aaronic, like Aaron figure in the text. Even as they leave Babylon and move towards the promised land, it looks very similar to Moses leading the people out of Egypt. We see that the Levites are carrying these ornaments through the desert. We see that the Persians are throwing beautiful goods at the people as they leave. We see that there's a Jethro character and moment even in the story. Everything seems to align with the Moses story which starts to build this hope that if Ezra can just come and restore purity to God's people, be that priest that restores the sacrifices of God's people, breed forth a new season of holiness and purity to God's people, maybe revival will finally happen. The people have been waiting for a new and better Moses to come and set up a new covenant with God's people, a covenant that will never end. Ezekiel talks about replacing the hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, talking about writing the covenant on human hearts where the people will live in beautiful, pure relationship with God and his people. And this is the vision for revival that we see in this return under Ezra, a vision for biblical faithfulness and purity. We're building this recipe for revival, and one thing that you can write down here is that our vision must, for revival must include becoming a people who are faithful to the word of God. Right? Revival is not merely hands in the air singing to God. It is not merely men and women coming to know Christ. Revival, true revival includes becoming a people who live out our faith as it is written in the Holy Scripture, becoming a pure people, casting sin away, keeping purity close, living out the laws, walking with the Lord, living lives of holiness in a world that desperately needs a glimpse of Jesus. This is the vision of revival we get under Ezra. 
Every one of these stories, Zerubbabel and the return there, Ezra and the return there, Nehemiah and the return there, have the same pattern. There's a vision for revival, and then opposition arises, and then God's people has a questionable, have a questionable response to the, to the opposition that arises. And so after this vision for revival, biblical faithfulness, purity, opposition starts to arise. And as you would guess, the opposition that comes to a community that desperately wants to be pure is that sin enters the camp. I don't know if you've ever been in a season in life where you've desperately wanted to turn over a new leaf and walk with the Lord, and then sin comes in and derails you. You fall into old habits. Someone in your family falls off the wagon. Someone in your small group starts to cheat on their spouse, or it all comes out, right? It just feels like you were on this journey towards looking like Jesus as a community, and then sin you didn't know this about sin, sin ruins everything. And this is what happens in the story of Ezra. This is part of what Pastor Aichi read, that after Ezra and these folks start flooding back into Jerusalem, somebody comes to Ezra, the leaders, and, and they say this. They say in verse two of chapter nine, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, and then they start to name all of the terrible pagan nations around them, like the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they've mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithful. Now, if you're new to the Old Testament, you're thinking, well, what's such a big deal? One of the, the big themes in the Old Testament is that God's people are supposed to be pure as compared to the peoples of this world. Right? Not, not in terms of marriage with folks from other nations, right? Even Moses himself was married to a woman from another nation. The problem was merging together the religious and worship practices and the ethical practices of these pagan nations. And so over and over again, this is what God's got God's people in trouble. They would merge themselves with a foreign people, adopt the worship of these pagan pagan gods and become this polytheistic nation and God's like, what is happening? You need to be pure, worship me and worship me alone. And so Ezra, who's leading the charge of we are gonna be pure this time, he gets the news that not only are some people going back to old ways, but a lot of people are and the leaders of the community are leading the charge. This has gotta be like a gut punch uh, for someone who's passionate about restoring faithfulness in the community of God. And this is what it says that, that Ezra did. It says in verse three that when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, of the God of Israel, gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. What's interesting, Ezra hears about sin and he treats it as if he's heard about a, a, a tragic death. Now all this imagery is, is mourning imagery, right? Sackcloth, ashes, sitting down, the community mourning around you, ripping your clothes, tearing out your beard, like anguish. He looks like someone who's just lost someone in a tragic accident, but no one's died. It's sin has entered the camp. 
Now this is not the questionable response. This seems like an appropriate response to sin in the community. And you can write this down. This is what we can learn from Ezra's response is that being faithful to the word of God means properly mourning sin in our midst. Mourning sin when it enters into our lives. Mourning sin when it enters into our families. Mourning sin when news of sin enters into our communities. Becoming people who are faithful to the word of God means properly mourning sin in our midst. And this is one of the things that a lot of times we, we don't do because when sin enters in, we just, we just want to respond, right? And some of us want to respond and yell at somebody. Some of us want to respond and confront. Some of us want to respond by deleting their number from our phone and never talking to them ever again, right? We have all these different ways we want to respond. Some of us sin ourselves. We want to respond by just fixing it. We want to respond by running from the Lord. We want to respond by punishing ourselves, right? There are so many ways we're tempted to respond. Or I think before we respond at all, the first thing that God shows us to do when sin enters in is to mourn it. I think it's appropriate that this image of mourning is related to sin because sin is death when it comes to revival and vitality of the spiritual life of a community. We've talked about that a lot, right? Not just the wages of sin is death, but sin itself is the cancer that spreads throughout a community and can kill it faster than anything else. You know, we've talked this last year a lot about all the stuff that's happened to church in the midst of COVID-19. And all these people are like, oh no, do you think the church is gonna make it through the pandemic, right? And every time I'm like, yes, right? Jesus says, I will build my church. We'll make it through a pandemic. There's been pandemics before. We're gonna make it through mask mandates. Of course we're gonna make it, right? We're gonna make it through a changing political landscape. We're gonna make it through the drama and tension, right? None of those things can kill church communities. Do you know what can kill a church community? Sin kills church communities. When sin enters in, especially at this level, in the leadership level, people are okay with it, turning their heads to it, fanning it on, whatever it is. Sin is the cancer that when it comes in can bring death to a community of faith, death to your family, right? death to our church, death to your life. And so since sin is synonymous with death, our response to sin should be very similar to hearing about death or cancer or a diagnosis or prognosis that's not good. You know, the question I wrote down for myself as I studied this text, I'll, I'll make it for all of us today because it's not just about me today, right? Is this, when was the last time you grieved over sin? Is that normally the response when sin enters into your life or your family or your community or your workplace or your ears, right? When was the last time you grieved over sin? I think there's always times where it's appropriate to do something, to respond in some way, but before we can respond, we need to feel it. We need to bring it to the Lord. And I love this whole like chapter nine and all of this, right? It's, it's just a depiction of the beauty of all of the people who care coming around to say, this stinks, this is garbage, we hate this. A couple of people have asked, like, okay, we're having a series on revival, this yucky stuff. Like, why aren't we talking about exciting stuff? We're talking about revival, right? But even what Pastor Aichi said this morning is really appropriate, that if we want to see revival, the first thing that you have to see is repentance and restoration. And I was talking to somebody after the first service today who said that revival is not going to happen unless we deal with the things that have made us dead. 
And the truth is there are some of us in this room who need revival because sin is deeply ingrained in our lives. Our family needs revival because sin is running rampant. Our community needs to be revived because sin is tearing it down. And so if we want to be revived, we need to figure out how to get this cancer of sin out of us and out of our community to become pure and holy people. We gotta mourn it. And then we've gotta do something about it. Doing something about sin is normally the point when churches get into a lot of trouble. Have you ever noticed that? It's one thing to be like, man, sin is terrible. We gotta confess, we gotta mourn, we gotta pray, right? And then at some point it's like, well, we gotta do something, right? We gotta have a conversation with this person who's gone wayward. I need to go and talk to my family member who's making some dumb decisions. I need to clean up my own act, right? And this is normally the time when churches kinda can run the tendency of doing something stupid, right? Either not taking it seriously enough or taking it the wrong kind of seriously and hurting people's lives in the process. And so the pattern in Ezra and Nehemiah is that there's a vision, there's opposition, and then there's a questionable response that makes us leave wondering, did they do the right thing here? And this is the response to the sin of their people that make us wonder, did they do the wrong thing here? And this happens while Ezra is praying and mourning. This is verse one of chapter 10. It says, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly, right? So, so, so far, so good. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, right? Kind of like, Ezra, come on, it's time to do something. Here's a plan. We've been unfaithful to our God. Just name it. By marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let's make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of the Lord, of my Lord, and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matters in your hands. We will support you, take courage and do it. And somebody comes in and gives him an action plan, and I love, this is how you know it's a bad action plan, is when someone comes to the leader and says, hey, I've got a great idea, now get up, do it. We'll be, we're behind you, go have fun, right? And Ezra's kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I guess this is the, a right decision, right? So what we're gonna do is we're gonna find all the people in our community who've married women who worship other gods, and we're gonna make a covenant with God that we're gonna force them to divorce their wives and turn them into single mothers and their kids into fatherless kids, and then we're gonna march them back hundreds of miles to the countries they came from, I guess, and tell them to figure it out on their own, and, and now we're gonna be a pure and godly community like the Bible says. And there's a vision for revival, there's opposition, and then God's people have a questionable response. And I, and I feel for these people, right? We actually don't get a lot of indication in the text of if this was the right decision or the wrong decision, right? Because there's a lot of, like he says, in accordance with the law. There's a lot in the Old Testament that talks about taking sin seriously, right? This is the Pharisees, like major line, right? Taking sin seriously. There are times, especially kind of in this Aaron Joshua epic of the Old Testament, where taking sin seriously means destroying people who aren't worshipers of God. And so I can see how a church community would take sin seriously by destroying the lives of people that they they considered sinners. 
And yet a lot of times, you ever notice this? The thing that hurts churches the most is when we destroy the lives of people that we consider sinners. It's a questionable response. Was it the right thing to do? Maybe. Was it the wrong thing to do? It feels like it. Have you ever been part of a decision of how to respond to sin that made you walk away feeling like dirty? Like, I don't know if we should have done that. It's important that we deal with sin, that we're a church that doesn't turn a blind eye to sin, that a church that doesn't celebrate sin, a church that doesn't allow sin to just run rampant without dealing with it. But I'll tell you, I've been doing this for a couple decades now, and the hardest thing that we do is make decisions of how to deal with sin in a way that has the biggest chance of bringing life, not death. All right, just last week, we, we've been walking with this uh, church discipline scenario. A guy in our church walked out on his wife and kids, united with somebody else, a huge mess. And, and so the, the, the victims in all of this have been amazing. They've been clinging to the Lord. They've been doing everything that you can do when your husband walks out on you, all this kind of stuff. And, and, and yet now we've got to keep following up with this husband guy. And it feels like every time we follow up with him, we run the chance of hurting all the people who've been victimized by this. And so we're always trying to be very careful. How do we do the right thing in a way that doesn't keep hurting folks who've been victimized by sin? It's like a tightrope that we try to walk. We, we don't know exactly if this was what they should have done, but I think what Ezra is trying to make us feel is that tension of maybe this is where things kind of went wrong here. And so I'm just going to give you a few things that we know for sure from this text and the rest of the Bible that, that can kind of turn this emotion into tangible action. And the first thing that we know for sure uh, is that it's very easy to be faithful to God's word in a way that doesn't resemble Jesus at all. We'll talk a little later about how Jesus would respond to a situation like this, but man, it is, if you're ever having to deal with sin, that is one of the times you could ask the question, is this how Jesus dealt with sinning, sinful people? Jesus was not soft on sin, we'll talk about that later, but it's easy to run into this pitfall. And so some of the things that, that we do know as we look at, at this text is, number one, sin is messy. It's messy. It's messy. Have you ever sinned before? <laughs> it's messy. You had sin enter into your family before and you kind of had to navigate through all the collateral? It's messy. All right, kind of linked to the next one. Sin can put us in no-win situations. You know, I feel for this community because what are they supposed to do? Keep worshiping all these false gods? Hope that everyone comes to the true God? They gotta do something, right? But in situations where sin comes in, it can put us in a situation where it feels like there's no winning. Right, I said before, sin is kind of like the cancer of the church. And if cancer comes into your life and you gotta deal with it, right? You gotta take it seriously. You gotta get it out. You gotta do your chemo, do your radiation, do your thing, right? But you know sometimes that it feels like the cure feels worse than the disease, right? The chemo kills the cancer, but it kills the white blood cells too. Right? It kills the hair cells too. It kills, it kills everything that's fast growing in your body, right? Sometimes you wonder, is this worth it? It's messy. Sometimes it feels like a no-win situation. This is what sin does. This is why we shouldn't do it, but this is why it's complicated when we find ourselves in it. And so really, as we're looking for a way to respond to sin in our lives and in our community, our response, it has to be biblical, but it has to be prayerful, and it has to be wise. 
I think one of the things that's most jarring to me about this man that gets Ezra up is just how quick <laughs> he wants to act, right? It's like, it's biblical, right? It says, look at the Old Testament, go and kill the sinners, right? Now get up and do it, let's not talk about it, just go do it, right? It just feels like they're making a real hard decision way too fast as you read the text. We got, in the same way we have to mourn sin, we gotta mourn the fact that the, the treatment for sin can sometimes be a really hurtful thing too, and so we gotta move slow sometimes, we gotta give space sometimes, we gotta pray and see what God does sometimes, we need to apply wisdom sometimes, and not just do what seems best to us and pretend that it's the biblical thing to do. Because right? Jesus always did the biblical thing, but Jesus doing the biblical thing always seemed like a more loving thing than when the Pharisees did the biblical thing, didn't it? Biblical, prayerful, and wise. You know, we learn a lot about what not to do in these passages, and so I've been looking for glimpses of hope in my study and always been looking, okay, how did Jesus deal with something like this? And the passage that I thought of this week is, is a passage that you find in the, in the book of John, chapter nine, where there's a story about how Jesus engages with a woman who is caught in sin that is, in a sense, worthy of death. This is the story of Jesus, I think it's Jesus, John 9, 41, the woman caught in adultery in this relationship. So the Pharisees, who kind of came out of this time, found this woman who was in this adulterous relationship and they drag her out of it, bring her before Jesus, and they all have rocks in hand because they tell Jesus, hey, everybody knows that the Moses says that when somebody commits adultery, you gotta kill them by stoning. So what are you gonna do, right, Jesus? Are you gonna take sin seriously or not? Are we gonna have a holy community? or not. Yeah, I don't know where the, the man was, because he was supposed to be stoned to death too, but he doesn't appear in this story, right? So you kind of sense there's already something going on that's a little bit wrong here, right? And, and so Jesus, it's a beautiful story, right? He first just, he's, he bends down and starts writing something on the ground. I think primarily to get us to spend the next 2,000 years debating over what he was writing on the ground, right? He's drawing something on the ground. And then he says to these religious men who are excited to kill this woman, he says, how about this? He doesn't say how about this. He says, let, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Yeah, yeah, let's kill her. Let's let the, the, the sinless one throw the first rock. It's funny, the sinless one in that circle was the only one not holding a rock. And yet, one by one, all these men dropped these rocks and probably muttered something under their breath <laughs> as they walked away. And then Jesus addresses this woman who's a perpetrator and now become a victim of religion in the midst of it. And he asks her a question, he says, where are your accusers? She says, there are none which means that the man, Jesus, standing next to her, she did not consider an accuser. And so then he responds, well, then neither do I accuse you. Go and leave your life of sin. Now, Jesus is not soft on sin in this story. He ends the story by saying, go and leave your life of sin. And yet the difference between the religious folks and Jesus is that Jesus was interested in, in repentance and restoration and these men were interested in punishment and restitution. Now, I always think of that, that verse in Micah chapter six, it's verse eight. 
It says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And then he asks this question, what does God require of you? And he says three things. He says, one, to do justly, right? To do the right thing. But second, to love mercy, right? Not to love punishment, not to love people getting, right? To love mercy. And third, to walk humbly with your God. And Jesus gives us this beautiful example of someone who does the right thing. He deals with her sin. He turns her into a righteous person. But he loves mercy, not punishment. And even though he was God, he walked humbly with God alongside this person who was an outcast to society. And if you're looking for a what-to-do list, I can just tell you what Jesus does. <laughs> this is what Jesus does when in response to sin entering into the community he's a part of. Number one, Jesus takes sin seriously. He doesn't run away from the conversation. He, he actually runs into the conversation. He gets right into the conversation. He takes sin seriously and he enters into the mess with us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you know that it's not, I'm not just talking about this story, right? That's when Jesus came to earth, it was him entering into the mess with us, right? There might be some sin in your life or around your life that you wanna deal with like from afar, like in a hazmat suit, sorry, right? If you wanna deal with it like Jesus, you gotta get into the mess with them. That's how Jesus models it. Takes it seriously, gets into the mess with us, and then he sacrifices himself to bring restoration to others. Now this happens in the story where he's willing to put his own neck out for this woman. And this happens in the bigger story where he comes to earth to sacrifice himself so that our sins might be forgiven. Now Jesus was the one who was without sin. And yet he put himself on the cross and in a sense allowed us to cast stones at him so that we might be right in the eyes of God. And he takes it seriously, he gets into the mess with us, he sacrifices himself, and then he invites us to a life of righteousness as we follow after him. Go and leave your life of sin. Right, come and follow me. I've got plans for you. And so what do we do? Right, you've got sin in your life, what do you do? Right, 1 John 1, 9, right? It's 9, 1, 1 backwards. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just. He will forgive your sin and restore you. Right? He will restore you from all unrighteousness. Confess it. Repentance, find restoration and revival. If you've got sin in your community, what do you do? Right? You take it seriously, you take it prayerfully, you mourn, you ask God, well, what do I do with this? You bring wisdom of what do we do with this? How do we deal with this in a way that takes it seriously, is willing to get messy in the process, and yet we bring truth in a way that brings life or is likely to? How do we come to terms with the fact that this might just blow up on us because sin ruins everything? It's a no-win situation, but we act faithfully to God and we walk with him. We've been talking as a church of what it looks like to open up out of COVID and kind of what posture we want to have towards ministry. And the phrase that, that came to our team was revealing God, restoring hope. And what we meant by that was that we wanna be a church that reveals the Lord. We preach the scriptures, we preach the gospel, we show people Jesus, not just good acts or good people or nice Christians, right? We wanna reveal God himself to our world. That's how revival comes. But we wanna be a people that reveal God in a way that restores hope. We wanna reveal God as angry people. We wanna reveal God in a way that makes unbelievers turn a blind eye to what we're trying to do or walk away from the church, right? We wanna restore hope because when we see Jesus walking around the earth, he's constantly revealing the Father in a way that brings so much life and hope and love and yet he, 
he gets into the hard conversations. And he's like the master surgeon, the oncologist that gets the cancer out and keeps the patient alive and nurses them back to health so they can live with him on this earth and then with him forever. Now, I don't know where you are with any of this. Right? Maybe, you, maybe you need to repent stuff in your own life today. Let's give you some space to do that. We've got a prayer room out there. We'd love for you to visit it today. Maybe you've got sin in your community. You don't know what to do with it. Right? Get some prayer today, even before you start figuring out what to do with it. Maybe you need to sit for a couple days and feel it and then let your response come out of a posture of mourning because sin should make us sad before it makes us mad, before we decide how to act, right? And so let's bring revival by seeking the Lord in faithfulness because he is a faithful God. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond in song together. Father, I lift up anyone today who is far from you Maybe they've never come to you because of their sin, because they think that they're unlovable or whatever they might feel. Let them realize that you came to our world to enter into our mess and seek us out. You came to seek and save that which was lost. Pray that folks would turn to you even in this moment. Pray for anyone in this room, Christian or non-Christian, who has sin in their life that's eating away at them and they're pretending like it's no big deal, but they know that they need to get rid of it. I pray that they would turn to you in this morning, in this moment, that you would show yourself to be faithful and just, that you would forgive their sin as they, cle- as they confess their sin, that you would cleanse them of all unrighteousness. I pray for folks who have sin in their community and they don't know what to do. I pray that before they decide what to do, that you would give them space to just mourn and grieve the loss of beauty and purity. And out of this season of mourning, we pray that you would give them clarity of, of how they should proceed, a next step that's faithful to your word, that's prayer-filled, and that's wise. And let them respond to this sin in a way that looks like you, even though it might not work, it might work, who knows, but let them model Jesus in the way they deal with sin in life. Pray that you would guide us to this end, that you would bring revival into our midst by making us slowly into a community that takes sin seriously and purifies ourselves and finds ourselves in right relationship with you. Let us have short accounts with you and with each other. Let us be a church that bears one another's burdens. Let us find holiness and beauty and living in submission to your word in this new covenant that Jesus himself initiated by giving his life for forgiveness of sin and coming back to life to restore life to all who believe. We pray all this in his name, amen.